Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1, page 1,326, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering, sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves, and that we should not trust in ourselves but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I want to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, on page um, 8, in the back of the Psalter hymnal. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sin and mi- sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Beloved of the Lord, the... Church Order of the United Reformed Churches, Article 40 of the Church Order of the United Reformed Churches, stipulates that at one of the services on the Lord's Day, the minister shall preach the Word of God as summarized by the three forms of unity with special attention to the Heidelberg Catechism and following the sequence of the Lord's Days. 
We are a confessional church. Like many of the churches of the Reformation, we have confessions. And they are not just ancient documents. They are the living voice of the church confessing our faith to the world. And we have stipulated that the minister shall preach the word of God as it is summarized in our confessions, particularly in the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, this evening we begin again to look at the Catechism, starting again at Lord's Day 1 and uh, expounding that great comfort that we have in Jesus Christ. But before opening that, I, I just want to deal with the fact that there are in every church, in every church that I have pastored and I'm only guessing uh, here also because no one has said it to me directly, but I think it's a safe assumption that as in the other churches that I've pastored, there's always someone who says, aren't we denigrating, putting down the, the Word of God by, by elevating the catechism in this way and uh, preaching the Word as summarized by the catechism? Yes, you're preaching the Word, but you're using a... Uh, an extra-biblical, fallible source. The, the catechism is not the infallible Word of God. It's, it's the work of fallible men. And why do we elevate it to, to such a height? Uh, isn't that contrary to being governed by the Word of God? Uh, there are those who uh, might have some sympathy for the idea of uh, no creed, uh, but the Bible, well, if someone were to adopt that saying, no creed but the Bible, I would be tempted to uh, kind of snarkily say, well, uh, I think that's your creed, and I don't find that in the Bible. Uh, this idea that we can't have any human teaching alongside the Bible to help us. In fact, the Bible assumes that we will have human teaching, teachers who are fallible, teachers who are vessels of clay, thus uh, weak human beings, who will expound to us the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the ascended Lord giving gifts to the church, and one of the gifts that he gives to the church is pastors and readers. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't say pastors and readers. It says pastors and teachers who will teach to us the Word of God, who will equip us with what we need from the Word of God. In the Old Testament, we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that uh, they stood up in front of the congregation and they read from uh, the Scriptures and then for hours began to expound the Scriptures and say what they meant. The New Testament tells us in Hebrews 13, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. How can you imitate their faith unless you know what they believed? And you can only know what, you, what they believed if they explained it to you, if they taught it to you. Indeed, uh, God gives teachers and he expects people to do some teaching. Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 says, Elders must be able to teach. 
And uh, Paul writes to Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That all implies that in addition to reading the Scriptures, and Paul did say devote yourself to the public reading of the Scriptures, but in addition to the reading of Scriptures, there are teachers who teach us. And their teaching isn't just drop the moment they they drop and stop breathing. Their teaching lives on. We're to remember the ones who taught us in the past. We remember people like uh, John Calvin or Caspar Olivianus or uh, the other uh, who wrote the the confessions and so forth, or Sinus. We're to to remember them and remember their faith. What did they teach? What did they say? Uh, That's why we look at the catechism. You know, it's interesting that Luke the beginning of his gospel uh, dedicates his work uh, or addresses his work to Theophilus. We don't know for sure if that's a real person because the name means lover of God and God has preserved Luke's work, his literary work, the gospel for, for the church of Jesus Christ until Christ returns and so there's a sense in which it's addressed to every lover of God. And he says, the reason I'm writing to you, Theophilus, the reason I'm writing to you, lovers of God, is so that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So that you may have certainty about the things that you have been taught. There's this teaching, and then there's the Scriptures. The Scriptures that give us certainty with regard to that teaching. Uh, A few weeks ago, Reverend Barnes uh, preached to us from uh, Thessalonians. A passage that says, uh, don't despise prophecy. Every time I read that, or the first time I read it especially, I thought, why would anybody despise prophecy? You know, the gift of prophecy was a New Testament gift. It was one of the spectacular ways by which uh, people uh, manifested the gifts of the Spirit and, and brought messages directly to the church from God because Scripture was not yet complete. And so they had these... Uh, prophets who prophesied in the churches and he says don't despise prophecy well, what was happening in the church you know was that uh, somebody says I have a prophetic message and somebody else would say I have a prophetic message and somebody else would say it and people would roll their eyes and say oh not him again you know uh, he's always having these prophetic messages but he says don't despise prophecy but do what test everything Test everything and hold on to what is good. Of course, these these prophecies were not guaranteed to be infallible, and so they had to be tested. And writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 about orderly worship, he says, uh, two or three should stand up and speak, and the others should weigh what is said. The others should weigh what is said. It needs to be compared to the Scriptures. The Scriptures ground us. The Scriptures give us certainty, but alongside the Scriptures we have this teaching. It's interesting in that uh, verse in Luke chapter 1 where he says to give you certainty concerning the things that are taught. The word, the Greek word that stands behind the English translation taught is the Greek word catechesis. Catechesis, from which we get the word catechism. We get the idea that uh, Theophilus was catechized. Uh, He had a catechism that taught him uh, the things of the faith. 
against which now he can compare uh, the word of God so that he might have certainty about the things of the catechism. Well, with that in mind, we begin to look at this catechism and uh, its first question, which is a rather bold question. What is your only comfort in life and death? That, that, uh, that question makes two assumptions. It assumes that you need comfort, and it assumes that there is really only one thing that can comfort you. You know, in our world of rugged individualism, there are a lot of people who believe that they are self-sufficient and that they can take care of themselves and they don't need anybody to come alongside them and, and comfort them. I am sufficient unto myself. I am strong. I'm able to take whatever the world throws at me. Don't insult me by, by saying I need comfort. Who needs comfort? I can take care of myself. But I believe we do need comfort. That rugged individualism is greatly uh, ignorant of of the reality of of the nature of life and the world in which we live. The world is a very sad place. There are wars and famines and floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and Uh, There's crime, there's pandemic, there's racial strife, there's political strife, there's uh, all kinds of uh, inhumane acts committed by humans against humans. We hear from time to time about human trafficking and uh, the underground kind of slavery that's going on, sex trafficking and so forth. It's a horrible world, and all sorts of terrible things are happening. We might begin to question whether or not Christ is really on the throne, which is why in Matthew 24, when he is trying to prepare his disciples for the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the day when not one stone would be left upon another, and uh, wanting them to flee Jerusalem and go to the hills of Judea before the, the great tribulation comes on the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, he, he begins by telling them that there will be uh, wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. But then he says, but that's not a sign. <laughs> That's not a sign. Well, if that's not a sign uh, of the nearness of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, why are you telling us about it? Well, I want you to expect that. Because you're going to think, you're, you're going to see me ascend on the clouds. And you're going to remember the vision of Daniel 7, where Daniel saw one like the Son of Man riding on the clouds and coming to the, the, the Ancient of Days and being enthroned there, giving a kingdom and a dominion and giving a power. And you're going to think, when you see me ride the clouds, you're going to say, he is ascending to the throne. Now, now things are going to happen. Now things are going to be straightened out. Now the world is going to be made right. Now he's going to rule with justice and equity and, and all the wickedness in the world is going to disappear and, and everything is going to be sweetness and light. And he's going to say, that's what you're going to think, but don't. 
Once I'm on the throne, there's still going to be earthquakes and famines, and not just until A.D. 70, but continuing on. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not only are there famines and earthquakes and uh, wars and rumors of wars, even in nice, quiet towns like Pella, Iowa, there are young widows, there are sick children, There are husbands and wives who behind closed doors are yelling and screaming at each other and throwing things at each other. There are people who live in chronic pain. There are parents dealing with rebellious teenagers. There are you who go to work every day and have to deal with people who make you want to just tear your hair out because they're so frustrating to have to to deal with. There are the grievous trials of old age, dealing with dementia, loved ones who have dementia, dealing with our own bodies that seem to betray us. They just don't work right anymore. Yes, we live in a sad world. We need comfort because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Our first parents rebelled against God and brought down upon this earth the curse of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, the whole creation groans under the weight of that curse. That's why we need comfort. We were created to live in paradise. But because of the sin of our first parents and our own sin, we have been kicked out of paradise. And the world is like a little hell. It's, it's like hell because hell is the absence of God. And, and God has withdrawn from us. He is not with us as He was with Adam and Eve before the fall. We don't have that kind of blessed communion and fellowship anymore. And we do have the curse. The curse of thorns and thistles. Literal thorns and thistles that grow out of the ground that, that hurt us when we bump into them. And many more metaphorical thorns and thistles. Everything that goes wrong every day that makes our our work futile so that we eat our bread by the sweat of our brow. Yes, we need comfort. But is there only one comfort? Aren't there many things that are comforting and comfortable? We accumulate property and possessions. We have lazy boy recliners. We have memory foam mattresses. They're comfortable, are are they not? Don't they comfort us? We have human companionship that comforts us. We surround ourselves with loved ones, husband, wife, children, grandchildren. They are comforting to know that they're They're there and they're with us and we can be together. Good meal is comforting. Aren't there lots of things that are comforting? The the stock market goes up and we're, we're comforted that our portfolio is a little bit stronger. The Catechism recognizes rightly the scriptural truth that all these things can be taken away from us. Property and possessions can be lost and have been lost. And many generations of our parents have suffered great poverty. They have been 
uh, in positions of, of wealth, and then all of a sudden that wealth just disappears, and it's gone. And, and that very thing could happen to us. We're healthy and strong one day, and the next day our health is gone. Job lost his children. He lost his property. He lost his health. He lost the support of his wife. And many of you have experienced similar loss. You know that the things that that we look to for comfort can easily be taken away. And finally, our life is taken away. Is there anything that can comfort us even in the face of the loss of our own lives? Yes, there is one thing that comforts. That one comfort that God gives. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, says the Apostle Paul. God, God has comfort that transcends all the vicissitudes of life, all the things that can go wrong, all the things that we can lose. His comfort transcends them and holds us. And that's what the Catechism describes. It's the comfort that Christ saves us. It's the comfort that the Father protects us. It's the comfort that the Spirit gives us life. The Son saves us. The comfort is that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully satisfied for all my sins with His precious blood. Why is there so much misery in the world? It's because of human sin. Is there an answer to sin? Is there something that can comfort us with regard to our sin? Yes, there is one thing that can comfort us with regard to our sin, and that is that the blood of Jesus Christ atones for sin. And everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is assured that all your sins have been forgiven, having been justified. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. He's not angry with us anymore. Our sins do make him angry. It grieved God when he looked at this world and saw that man's heart was only evil all the time. But now his wrath is propitiated. His wrath is turned aside. His wrath is gone. He is not angry with us anymore. Because the blood of Jesus Christ covers us, His perfect righteousness and satisfaction provides what we need to stand before God and have God smile at us, have God's face shine on us. He doesn't hide His face from us anymore, but His face shines on us and He blesses us because Christ has taken away our sins. We belong to Him. He's purchased us. We are His servants. You know, in this world, you either are a servant of sin, which leads to death, or you are a servant of Christ, which leads to life and glorious liberty. Our sad world wants liberty, but they want liberty from God, not liberty under God. Because they want liberty without God, they have no comfort. 
They believe that they have the right to determine their own destiny, to determine who they are and what they are. They believe that they can decide for themselves who they are and what they are. And because they are playing God, if anyone challenges them, they're afraid. (laughs) You're threatening me. You don't have the right to challenge me. You don't have the right to tell me who I am or what I am. I determine who I am, and and you have to accept that. You have to use the pronouns that I want. (laughs) And if you don't, I feel threatened. I feel endangered. And you, therefore, are full of hate, and you need to be censored, and you need to be silenced, and you need to be gotten rid of because you're challenging my identity. The Christian is content with the identity that God gives, that we are created in His image, and that we are created for Him, created by Him and created for Him, created to, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, created to be with Him forever. And so we gladly throw off bondage to sin and Satan and rebellion against God and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who saves us from ourselves as well as saving us from all evil. He saves us even from the evil within ourselves. And when Jesus saves us, then also the Father protects us. I love the words of the form for baptism that says, The Father makes a covenant of grace with us and protects us from all harm or turns it to our profit. We have the great assurances of 2 Corinthians that He comforts us in all our afflictions and and takes care of us. Even when the Apostle Paul felt that he was burdened beyond measure so that his strength uh, was gone and he despaired even of life, the sentence of death in ourselves. That worked out for good because he and we through him learn that we're not to trust ourselves but to trust in God who will always care for us and provide for us. Romans 5 says not only that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It also says that that therefore we rejoice in suffering, know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, character produces hope, a hope that will not disappoint us. Romans 8 says there is nothing in life or in death that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore we count it all joy when we suffer various trials. They are for the perfecting of our faith and will redound to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ when he is revealed. The Father protects us. He watches over us and he provides all that we need. Christ, Christ who has become a life-giving spirit, sends the spirit into our hearts to give us new birth, new life, and to strengthen that life through the word of grace which strengthens us from day to day as we see more and more of the glory of God and are transformed by it. The Spirit is working in us, giving us life. This is the comfort that we have. The Son saves us. The Father protects us. The Spirit is working in us, giving us new life and strengthening that life day by day until finally He raises up our bodies as well and brings us into eternal life. 
eternal life, which is glorious, not, not for its length. It is long. It is forever. But that's not what makes it glorious. What makes it glorious is it is life with God, life in the presence of God, life where we'll never get bored, never get tired. You know, Christmas morning, the, the presents excite the children. They're so excited about these glorious new presents they have. But even before the end of the day, some of them are broken. Some of them are lost under the bed with the dust bunnies and, and forgotten. The glory quickly fades. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth will never fade. It will just keep getting better and better and better. That is the comfort that we have. He assures us of eternal life. Now the Catechism expounds this comfort by teaching us what we need to know in order to enjoy that comfort. We need to, we need to know how great our sins are and how great our misery is. Uh, no one goes to the doctor unless they feel sick. If you feel healthy and strong, rarely will you go looking for a remedy. We need to be convinced that indeed we are sick, thin sick, and need a Savior. And so we need to be taught our sin and misery, and the Catechism will do that. And it shows us also how we are delivered from sin by a Savior who is both God and man, who uh, can, as a man, stand in our place, and as God, in, with the strength of his divinity, endure in his humanity the infinite wrath of God and deliver us from it. And then the Catechism shows us how we ought to live grateful lives, how we ought to strive for the righteousness of God by obeying his commandments, not to gain salvation, but to show our love for a salvation freely given. And then it teaches us the duty of prayer, the chief part of the thankfulness that we owe to God for the great salvation that is ours. We need to know our sin and misery. We need to know how we are delivered from our sin, and we need to know how to live thankful lives. That's the outline of the book of Romans. Romans 1 to 3 is about sin and misery. Romans 4 through 8 is how we are delivered from that sin. Romans uh, 12 uh, to the end is how we are to live godly lives. And, and so this is a very biblical pattern that the catechism follows for us. And Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, we will uh, begin to work through that. May God give us comfort as we do that. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he loved us and gave his life for us, that we through faith in him might be forgiven that we may be adopted as your children and heirs, and that we might be uh, assured of eternal life. We thank you for your heavenly love that uh, watches over us and protects us from harm or turns it to our profit. We pray that we may uh, never be afraid, but know that you are working in us and through us and through the circumstances around us. And we pray, O oh Father, that uh, we may uh, grow uh, in new life through the work of the Spirit, through the Word, and that uh, we may more and more be assured that indeed we are your children and will be made perfect in the resurrection. O oh, Father, have mercy upon us, we ask in Jesus' name.